So good evening everyone. So we've come to our <clears throat> last evening together, um, in this form anyway, of this retreat. And the, the forms come together and they, they have a lifespan and then they dissolve and change, but the practice remains regardless of the circumstance. So tonight I'd like to uh, talk about that continuing of the application of path activity, regardless really of the circumstance. And I realize that there's, you know, this whole territory of taking the practice into everyday life or um, having all aspects of our life be part of our practice because I think there is a split that can happen and um, happens for many of us where we make a division between this sort of retreat mode and sitting meditation as, you know, the practice and everything else is in the way somehow. Trouble is, about 90% of our life is everything else, if not 99%. (laughs) So to actually open, uh, you know, it's not a one-fold path, just sit, eight-fold path is... uh, many-fold path, bringing all aspects of ourselves and our lives and our relationship in this world into our practice. And, you know, that is, that doesn't necessarily mean, I think sometimes there's this ideal, um, people think about, for example, Kilisar and I in this role, or Dharma teachers, we probably think our lives are, are more perfect than they actually are and that we've got it together. We sort of managed to pull this everyday life thing together. But, you know, if I'm honest, most of the time it's a bit of a mess. You know, one tries to manage <laughs> uh, in the kind of circumstances of of daily life that often feel like they they spin out of control and they, you know, challenging and and things that one, you know, as if you practice the Dharma, you should be good at everything, you know, fix cars and (laughs) be an IT expert and have great romances. And, you know, there's, you know, it's it's really a a sort of projected idealism that we have to be realistic that, uh, you know, watching the breath's not necessarily going to translate into becoming a supersonic human being. But it does sound like that sometimes when you read these sort of adverts for meditation and mindfulness. It's like, you know, you get, you know, kind of make some adjustments and everything lines up. (laughs) And it's all smooth sailing from there on in, you know. 
You know, if I'm if I'm really honest, I would actually say that it's probably things get a bit more challenging in some way because you get you know as you awaken, you see more, you become more open, and see more depth and breadth of what's going on in the world around, and even within our own you know conditioning patterns see more of ourselves and it's not always easy to see more than we wish to see there's a very good reason why human beings have a lot of denial going on (laughs) you know experts in denial uh, because you know it's uh, it's challenging but awakening implies that we we wake up and we stop dreaming so much and we meet life uh, as one meditation teacher said, to become the practices to become or to be more realistic and you know less uh, caught perhaps it's not that it's uh, wrong to have ideals it's lovely to have a guiding star uh, the star of you know developing and growing and awakening and so on and being more wise and loving, having more equanimity. But if we project that ideal without wisdom into our everyday situation, then it sometimes, you know, we get into a situation where we we find it more harder to accept the parts of ourselves or the mundane aspects of life or the relational field. Um, the challenges, the way the world is that are less than ideal. And you know, we tend to be culturally very idealistic and so set ourselves up for a lot of um, struggle and frustration and disappointment. So it's a, a balance to, to, to have um, you know, an eye on that potentiality and yet at the same time to be willing to bear with the realism of of life which for many people that become more awake and are meditators they become more sensitized as well and so all of this um, you know demands in some ways more authenticity more depth more inner reflection and not always easy answers. Um, but that is the beauty, I think, also of the practice, that uh, it encourages us to go more deeply to, to within to develop the capacity to be with whatever we need to meet. And so this, you know, we began the retreat with taking of the precepts, and this is a very important foundation for the path. This ethical, internal ethical guideline, which is different than sort of social morals because one can be quite intimidated by what society says is right, which can be completely unethical. <laughs> you know, it can be right, be told it's right to go to war, it's right to discriminate, it's, you know, even sometimes backed up by religious um, argument and so on, but it's not ethical. So to develop 
an inner ethic and not necessarily a social moral is a an evolutionary process really and an important process for us to to have this uh, inner honing and discernment as to what is right action and what is the right response and the guidelines for that uh, you know the precepts are a guideline an outer guideline but the inner guideline is this quality of what the Buddha called two dimensions of conscience in Buddhism called Hiriyanotapa which are interesting and helpful to reflect on Hiri is the sense of um, a sense of feeling remorse or that feeling that when we've been out of alignment we've said something or done something that doesn't sit well it can be quite subtle and maybe not so subtle but it doesn't. It feels. It feels off. It feels. It has a resonance that's sort of diminishing to the heart. And what's important that that we allow ourselves to feel, you know, that sense of of hiri when it arises, sense of feeling remorse, or I wish I could have maybe done that or said that a bit more carefully. Um, and that's different then creating a guilty person. It's the action, to look at the action and say, yes, that action could have been honed. Um, and that, and when we look at it in that way, then it allows us to, uh, to learn from that process. You know, we, and we all are in that learning curve. Yeah. So we allow ourselves to be taught by that faculty of inner conscience that's that's helping to guide um, our behavior. You know, but then if we go and then create a me that's bad, then that's actually considered an unskillful state. <laughs> this whole, par- you know, this sort of heaviness of guilt and. Uh, you know, it's it's actually can even deflect from really a a more subtle understanding of that faculty of conscience in its purest form. And and so one can feel what's been done without creating guilt and complexity around it or justification, just to feel the feeling and allow that to move through, purify and adjust. And then this other faculty, otapā, is it's it's a, a a skillful fear actually not all fears are bad some fear is you know we can release out of but some sense of you know, um, in human consciousness there has to be something that stops us from just acting out of vengeance or violence or hatred um lust and so on that there's something that stops us that goes oh you know this this there's a boundary here um that keeps us within the realm of the human human and the humane and once we step over that boundary and start to um not hear that anymore then we then we don't have a way of reflecting back into our behavior and again, in our in 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 world in the world and the way the world works, that we can easily be that that 
their ultra faculty can easily be overridden and justified. Mm. And yet it can be very dangerous to do that because eventually not only this, this faculty of conscience, Hiriotapa, is considered what is a guardian, a guardian of the world. These are the forces that guard the world. And internally they're a guardian of our, of our heart, if you like, of our soul. And they maintain inner psychological cohesion. So when we erode those guardians, when we override them consistently, either on the outer social level or inwardly, then we create the breakdown of that which guards and keeps safe the world and our human heart. So it's much more profound, really, than just sort of being a good person or getting caught up in guilt. It's actually a psychological soul mechanism almost that when operating in a healthy way helps to protect and over time honing ourselves to these these um, consideration reflection around the guidelines of the precepts then it becomes quite subtle and then when we sort of for convenience sake we find ourselves transgressing it's not a, or for whatever momentum, it's not a question of then falling into guilt or, you know, it's not like some thunderbolt will come, but it's a, it's a moment of actually starting again, recognizing and starting again. And this is why in the Buddhist language, these observances of the precepts are called the training, sikapadanis, we're training ourselves. So it's understood there will be transgression. But in the training, there's a, there's a, 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 one was refining. So one might start off at a more coarse level and then refine until you realize, you know, it's more valuable, for example, to be truthful than to distort our speech for the sake of convenience or just deflection and so on. So it's a, it's a, this is part of a path activity. And, and over time, as these precepts and these observances and this inner ethical sense becomes honed, then it leads to uh, what, uh, what's said in the Buddhist understanding, it leads to what's called the closing of the doors to the lower realms. And what that means is that we set ourselves up less and less for falling into very difficult states. Uh, we lessen the tendency for, for, for a sort of uh, f- feeling um, and experiencing you know, extreme states, emotional and uh, psychological and mental states. And so it's said that as that starts to happen, then we start to truly enter into the, more fully into the human, human, uh, humanity. And we become, and, and you know, sometimes we're not always fully human. <laughs> we have other energies and forces that overwhelm us. You know, we get very driven and addictive, or we become, you know, we can see quite hellish and demonic sorts of behaviors that go on uh, where we've lost our human hearts. So for me, if I 
in spite of the challenges and messiness of daily life, for me it's a lot about how to maintain this human heart in spite of everything. Uh, Particularly in an atmosphere of increasing intensity uh, in, in the world that we live in now, where there are many forces unleashed that can overwhelm that heart, that fundamental, what's called in some Buddhist metaphor, brilliant sanity, compassion, kindness, ethical response, wise consideration. These are all natural. We're honing them in the Dharma, but they're all natural to our human heart. So to maintain it might not seem spectacular. <laughs> you know, it might not be noticed, but over time uh, it, it becomes a source of great trust. We, uh, trust in ourselves and trust from others and a source of stability and offers, it, you know, there's an offering from that space that can happen in regards to our relationships. To, and to, you know, so this is a foundation and upon that begins to allow the gathering of the heart through this samadhi practice that we've been doing. You know, to sati, mindfulness, samadhi, gathering, to learn. You know, and this is, a, this is not the easiest part of the path. It's in some ways the most challenging because, you know, we can cognitively and intellectually and so on understand um, the ethical training. We can apply that. Um, the fruit of the path, wisdom, we can wisely reflect, we can get some of that aspect, but this, what we've been doing really, highlighting this week, which is this training of gathering, simplification, turning the mind inward for the sake of just cultivating more awareness. One great teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Lee, he, he uh, made an analogy for the path. He said it's a bit like a bridge crossing Uh, creating a bridge over a very fast-flowing river that has three pillars upholding the bridge. The pillar on the far bank, which is an analogy for wisdom, and the pillar on the near bank, an analogy for ethics, the first and the last aspect of the threefold path. So they're they're easier to plunge into the... because there's the, the ground, they're being plunged into the soil, into the earth. But the pillar in the middle... I mean, I'm not an engineer, but I imagine if you're plunging a pillar holding up, or pillars holding up a bridge in the middle of a fast-flowing river, then that would be an engineering challenge because it's going against the current of the river. So when we start to steady and be present, we're going against the current of the mind. And so we've all been immersed in the currents of the mind and, you know, uh, little by little beginning to steady, steady within that current, or at least not get so washed away down the river (laughs) in the vortexes of our patterning and our reactivity. And why, why this is the most challenging really aspect of the path is it takes a lot of patience and returning to again and again. And in, in many ways, you know, there's a lot of feeling about I need to 
get somewhere with this practice in particular. But, you know, in some ways it's a lot more about starting again and being willing to do that. And in our daily life, you know, not to think that that practice is just, we just leave that on the cushion. You know, so that we can irrigate as we move through our day, whatever our you know, situation is, we can bring in, say, can we do five mindful breaths? You know, so this practice is grounded in what we're always with when we're awake, and which is our, which is our body and breath. So that this, we can use this as a support. There's a tremendous support for this practice, and, if, and it comes within the sphere of this first foundation of mindfulness. So in any moment, standing in a queue, shopping, getting frustrated, driving, and someone cuts in or getting caught up in some sort of emotional state, spun out in stress, you know, what happens every day. (laughs) Just being able to remember, you know, the feet touching the ground, feel the feet few steps, the sensation, just touching the finger, little finger, one breath, deeper breath, maybe the spine straightening, chest opening a bit, a bit more relaxing, the ring finger, another breath. Feeling arriving a bit more, calming a bit more, middle finger, index, thumb, so on. So can touch, feel the fingers, five breaths. Start again. So mini pauses, mini pauses uh, to help just break the patterning of the momentum of the mind and its drivenness and bringing the foundation in that moment to be able to reflect. So this samadhi being the ground then for the reflective inquiry, what's happening now? What state's going on? What feeling tone? What are the mental? What, what, is, what, is, what am I caught in? What am I putting my energy in? What is the what is where 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 is the dukkha? Is there dukkha here? If there's dukkha, then I'm holding, grasping, wanting, or averse. You know. So what am I holding to so tightly? Whatever, what am I resisting? So just you know, we can do this. You know, it doesn't depend on the form of sitting on a retreat. This is an ongoing internal reflective practice. And then you realize, oh, I don't want it to be this way. That's, you know, that's fair enough. But are you going to just generate more suffering in response to what is? Or can one resource oneself to be in relationship to what is in a more replacing that reactivity with a moment of mindful reflection? opening, being aware, taking those breaths, 
And so as a Chinese master, Master Wa said, learning then to see the states of mind turn rather than being turned by the states of mind. Rather than being so caught up and then being spun out, learning to see that feelings, thoughts, emotions, states of mind, reactions are constantly arising and passing, coming and going. Ajahn Chah said, and this is a, you know, his, his great brilliance really in his transmission of the teaching was to make it um, every moment practice regardless of circumstance. So that you can practice with everything. So when someone said to him, you know, I haven't got time to practice. And when he said, well, have you got time to breathe? <laughs> it sometimes feels like that in our modern life. We don't even have time to breathe properly. <laughs> you know, so you've got time to breathe and you, then, you, then you've got your practice going. And he said, know and watch your heart. This is in turn, know and watch your heart. Heart, mind, jitta. It is pure, but emotions come to color it. Let your mind be like a tightly woven net to catch emotions and feelings that come and investigate them before you react. So, it's not always easy to do that when we're fired up. Yeah. So in the, one of the, skills of coming out of that reactivity is notice where's my body feeling the feet feeling the hands taking the deep breath and then trying to catch what is arising and investigate what's happening here the feeling tone and rather than this mindfulness practice one aspect is like the gatekeeper it's like what Ajahn Charles talking about this discerning before you let everything flood into the heart and then suffer. So it's like an outpost, like just saying, hang on a minute, <laughs> who goes there? <laughs> you know, and say, okay, I know you. <laughs> it feels very familiar. <laughs> this state of mind, this feeling, this agitation, this patterning, and catching it in our net of mindfulness discerning, you know, what you let in more deeply. Or mindfulness is sometimes, the Buddha called it the flood stopper, that which stops the flood of reaction through the, the hindrances that overwhelm us and then flood out, flood in, flooding into the heart and then flood out into the world around. So to stop, to pause, to catch. And this, another way of talking about mindfulness perhaps is the generation of the ability to contain, have a container. One of our uh, monastic friends used to talk about um, the process, and I don't know about this process, but I'll take his word for it, of um, making diamonds. You know, the heat to extract the diamond from the, um, the core material. 
requires great heat and pressure. And his analogy was that that is similar to this practice of mindfulness. It's like the container that can withstand the heat and the pressure of what arises when there's contact, sensory experience, the arising of our own inner patterning, contact with an intensified world that triggers a lot, a lot of feeling, a lot of um, sometimes very profound stress and distress, fear, anxiety, what will happen. And so to, to contain that, the breath, this is this practice, little by little, and so that this heart starts to become fired into this vajra, what they call a vajra, unshakable heart. It's like a vajra diamond, a diamond that can cut through, but isn't cut, that can have many facets and reflect the light. This is the nature of the heart, so it's sometimes called the diamond-like heart. It's being honed and fired in this practice. Through, not through, you know, avoiding the challenges of life, but being, allowing those challenges to be the, to initiate and to be the fuel for that process of distilling this unshakable heart, the heart, unshakable heart in contact with the world, but not being overwhelmed. And so that, you know, little by little, little by little, as again, as Ajahn Chah has said, this practice in moments of doing that, moments of meeting how it is, just this breath, just this moment, it's just like preparation. This practice is preparation for the moments when something really big hits that would completely overwhelm us, maybe even destroy us through our own reactions, or maybe we destroy someone else. Because we have to be realistic about human passions and where, when they're unguarded sometimes, untransformed, um, the, the danger that can happen. It's like that case in, in South Africa of... Oscar Pistorius, um, great Olympic um, paramedic, no, para, what's it called? No, Paralympic uh, medalist that, um, you know, landed up shooting his you know, beautiful girlfriend, Riva Steinkamp in a moment of passion, moment of overwhelm, moment it seems, you know, it's hard to get to the real story, and it was very, got very convoluted and complex, but a moment of overwhelm um, and rage, and destroy her life and destroy his life. And, you know, who knows when that trigger is, and I'm sure it's very, very complex, very deep causes that in that moment of things that had gone before that led to that one trigger and he couldn't contain, couldn't contain the fear, the rage, whatever it was. And, you know, five minutes and this, everything is destroyed at the height of incredible accomplishment. 
it's quite i mean it's quite poignant and and tragic and terrible and yet this is what we're all capable of it can happen to any of us actually in in any moment because these these we don't know what can get triggered if the forces of what we're presented with are um, powerful enough for us, overwhelm the mind. And particularly in the context of an increasingly intensified world where more passion, more out of control um, reactivity becomes almost normalized. And the, this, this sort of core sanity of the human heart can get overwhelmed. It's a, sometimes a fragile thing. It's not ultimately, but it can be. So we need to take care and protect and guide and guard. So we've been practicing this little by little preparation through this week. And and then learning in the midst of working with the conditions to notice moments of what the Buddha called the, the unconditioned, the unformed, the liberated, the peaceful, always here and now, not dependent actually even on how many retreats we've done or, you know, if we think we're worthy or not. Yeah, it's just our birthright. Everyone's right. To notice, to realize, to rest in this pure heart open heart, present heart of awareness. To taste that, to be interested. And the way into that that we've been exploring in this third truth, as Ajahn Chah would say, that regardless of time and place, regardless of what's happening, what's gone before, what situation is, what our personalities are, what our histories are, regardless of all of that. This whole practice of the Dharma comes to completion of the place where there is nothing. It is a place of surrender, of emptiness, of laying down the burden. The place of waking from the dream, putting it down being willing to be simple in the nakedness of not having to create, strategize, have a big agenda, have a big past, have a big history, you know, to carry the burdens. And so, you know, generally speaking, it's a practice to lay down the burdens. You know, we practice it every day, like that rock. If you remember the story of Ajahn Chah, is it heavy? Oh yes, it's very heavy, so it's not if you don't lift it. So what, what rocks do we carry around in our pockets? 
And can we, there's a lot of rocks that we unconsciously carry around, a sense of big responsibility, a sense of, you know, like having to do this and do that. But what's the worst that can happen if you put them down? Today I had an interesting experience. I took some time, a little bit from this afternoon, to try and catch up, you know, online and was um, wanting to give one of the talks from Ajahn Sujito Dharmagiri recently. I interviewed him about um, climate change and racism and class system and in England and some really interesting subjects, Donald Trump. <laughs> we got into some very interesting economics and how does this all relate to the Dharma? So there's this interview and I was sort of sharing it here and I wanted to give the link uh, to um, Dawn who oversees the some of the media here for her to share it because it's a really excellent interview. He has some very, very fantastic things to say. So she she said to me, well, actually, she went to the link and, and it didn't work. So I thought, oh, I better go check that out. So I went up and checked it out. And um, on box.net, where I have about, I don't know, eight years of files, lots and lots of different Dharma talks and our whole online course and, you know, just massive amounts of material. And it said, your account's been deactivated. <laughs> And I have to admit, it was a real, like, where's the equanimity? It was like, <laughs> I, my, I nearly had a heart attack. It's like, oh, God, <laughs> this can't be. And so I started to, you know, try to get back in, and it wouldn't, there was no way it would let me in, you know. And I was like, what happened? And then I realized that I had an old email connected with the account that I hadn't checked for months, and they'd been asking me to pay. And then I realized, because our address had changed, that the credit card, you know, all, you know, so, but they wouldn't let me in to pay, and I just had this moment of, that's it, you know, does that mean it's all gone? And after I got over the horror of it all, because there's all these people hooked up to this course and downloading stuff, and I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I actually felt this, uh, I said to Kitty Saro, uh, you know, do you want to hear um, some bad news or good news? And he goes, oh, give me the bad news then. I said, well, you know, I've just, our account's been completely deactivated. <laughs> and he just said, well, we've all got to die sometime. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, that's helpful. <laughs> huh? I asked him to pray, yeah. So, yeah. I said, this is the moment to go to Kuan Yin, you know, just get out there and go to Kuan Yin. Um, so anyway, after about, you know, I just decided to do a sort of full-on a, a kind of attack on Box.net. So it's like three emails later, seven phone calls, and they don't answer any, you know, you just get on these loops and email. And so in the end, I thought, I'll ring up their sales department because I know they'll answer immediately. <laughs> And they did, and I was sort of pleading. I said, look, I'm really, really sorry about not paying, but I really am on my knees here, you know, begging. <laughs> so, 
this, you know, in the end, anyway, it got sorted in the end, it got sorted out, so I'm glad to say it's all up and running, but it was a moment, there was a moment of great relief, I have to say, thank God, that's all gone, (laughs) you know, it was like when we were in Daimagiri in 2000, and we we did a three-month retreat, five of us, and a fire came through, it was a whole big story, I won't go into the whole story, but we had to actually run for it. And I actually thought the whole thing had burnt down. And there was a part of me that thought, thank God. (laughs) 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 So it's a moment, I mean, what, I mean, actually, we hold on to all these things, but, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And when someone's asking about equanimity, it's allowed to allow ourselves to really uh, be with the truth of what can happen. What can happen is things fall apart, we will die, others will die, loved ones will die, that, you know, um, maybe we will be disliked, maybe we'll be disapproved of, uh, maybe even this whole world system will collapse. You know, so to be able to, to lay the burden down, that doesn't mean to say that you don't try and get your account up and running again, because I thought, well, it might be nice for people if they want to access this stuff. Um, but, you know, we don't go and try and keep, you know, a sustainable world going. And that's that's going to require a big effort from everyone's part at this particular point in our human journey. But it's like, can we pick up, not from that place of stress and overwhelm and fear and anxiety, but can we pick up knowing what it is to put down the burden? Because if we know what it is to put down the burden if we open to the reality of deep impermanence, then it allows the heart to rest. And ironically, ironically, the heart loves truth. And the truth is, it's, you know, the truth of the heart is that it doesn't own anything. It doesn't own anything because it knows on some profound level it's, deeply entwined with everything. It is everything. But it doesn't have to hold on. It can just be and be present. So Ajahn Chah said, our heart is like this bell. He said the bell can ring so beautifully because it's empty inside. You know, that's, that's, that's why when, when something touches, touches the bell, it can resonate because it's empty. It's not holding on. You know, so he said, let your heart be like this bell. Let it be empty. Just keep emptying those rocks. And you might think, oh, but I'll just, you know, I'll have nothing to say. I'll just be like an enlightened doorknob, enlightened cucumber, <laughs> boring, normal, you know. I won't be a scintillating personality. I won't know anything, you know. But, uh, you know, just let it go. We don't have to know lots of stuff. Uh, so to, to just, and then you think, no, no, I've got to, you know, I've got to keep contact with the time. And I've got to keep all my all my notes going and you know what I carry around 
this much of notes for 20 years for my Dharma talks. And I think one day I'll be able to let them go. It hasn't come yet, but, <laughs> you know, so, so I'm still working on it. It's still a, a work in progress. So we put lots of stuff in ready for the moment when, you know, we have to respond. And then when someone asks us something, it's just a <laughs> clunk, clunk, clunk. Yeah, so it gets very heavy. That's why Ajahn Chah was so light, you know. He was so amazingly trusting. You know, sometimes, you know, he would say, you know, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to talk about. You know, one time he's, he's invited to give this talk in this big place, and what are you going to talk about? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. In fact, he would say, I don't even know if I'm going to go. <laughs> I might, I might not. Yeah. So he would just let it fo- uh, flow, let it unfold, and just you know, flow with what the Dharma. Just let the Dharma take care of it. So he said, you know, practice the Dharma, but then trust the Dharma to carry us. You know, this, is our, this is our practice. This is our practice. Daily practice, just to to keep allowing ourselves to let be and to trust, to trust that we are being carried. It's a very beautiful thing. Just to finish with our beloved teacher, teacher's words, Jincha. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So as we go on our way from this retreat, 
back into our lives. May the seeds that have been planted here, may we trust that some seeds have been planted and that they will grow and flower beautifully in our lives. May we trust that and allow that flowering to be an offering into this suffering and struggling world. 